Welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. I'm Kim Greenhouse, and I want to thank you for being here tonight. I know many of you are tuning into this broadcast on the World Wide Web, and I want to thank you for not underestimating this glorious medium. You know, I've been producing segments for radio for the last several months on different networks, including the World Wide Web. I've had the privilege of interviewing Dr. Muhammad Yunus, the founder of the Grameen Bank, the founder of Sterling Energy, a new electric power plant for the world that's been in business for 10 years, the owner of StarTech International, who has set up a waste elimination company that can eliminate any and all forms of waste, people in magnetics and science, in health and wellness. And usually, I have felt very comfortable interviewing them. I've been prepared, and it's been fun, and it's been easy. But something about the interview with our guest was not easy to prepare for. And I want to tell you why. First of all, you all need to sit down. Do not stand up, because you may fall down, as I did many years ago when I met Betty Sue Flowers. Let me tell you a secret about her. Now, some know her as a poet, an editor, an educator, and a business consultant. Others know her as the director of the Lyndon Baines Johnson Presidential Library or the Kelleher Professor of English at the University of Texas at Austin and director of creative writing. Other people still know her as a member of the Global Business Network, and other people know her as a consultant to NASA, a member of the Envisioning Network for General Motors, the visiting advisor to the Secretary of the Navy, and the writer of Global Scenarios for Shell International in London and the World Business Council in Geneva. When God told me to think of somebody elegant and divinely guided who's here in service to the world to help take the world to the next level, God told me to get Betty Sue Flowers on right away. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, this woman is the author of Extending the Shade, the co-editor of The Last Word on Power, Reinvention for Leaders for Anyone Who Must Make the Impossible Happen, the co-editor of Daughters and Fathers, the author of Browning and the Modern Tradition, and with Bill Moyers, Genesis, A Living Conversation, Healing in the Mind, and The Power of Myth. I can think of no greater person to invite to its rainmaking time for a celebration of a new story for humanity other than Betty Sue Flowers. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Betty Sue Flowers. Well, thank you, Kim. It's so good to be here, and what a lovely introduction. I'm in such good company, <laughs> uh, not least with you and uh, the other guests that you've had on this program, and I really love what you're doing. Um, you put it just the right way, as far as I'm concerned, which is a new story for humanity. And I think that's what we all need. And the wonderful thing about story-making is that it's a natural human thing to do, and we're all involved in it. You don't have to be elected president of the United States or be CEO of a corporation to be involved in this greatest of human endeavors, which is creating a new story. You have done extensive work with Shell International in London to be part of editing and co-working with them for a future scenario. And some people would be very happy to hear about that. And other people would say, oh, God, why is she working with a, you know, either a multinational or an oil company? And how could they possibly care about the future? And I just thought to set a context for the audience tonight that you would share about how your work began with Shell and what you did with them. Well, um, I'll try to make this short, Kim, but it's a kind of, um, <laughs> it's an interesting story because what happens when you ask 
a deep question of yourself and of the world. And my question was, why is there so much unnecessary suffering caused by the stories people tell about who they are and who they might become? The answer to that question led me deep into the forest of the economic myth. Let me explain a little bit. I think four myths have created us in the West. The myth of the hero, the religious myth, and by myth I don't mean something untrue, but just a grand or big story, the democratic or scientific myth, and thank goodness our country was founded during the heyday of that myth, and the myth that we're in now, the economic myth. And when I, as an English professor, ask what can I do to contribute to the world beyond the teaching that I do, one of the things that I saw was that we were telling highly inadequate stories about who we are and who we might become. Knowing that we were within the economic myth, I thought, well, do I have to go back and get another PhD in economics? And uh, fortunately, the opportunity to work with Shell International with a team of 20 mostly economists from all over the world allowed me to learn how to write stories within the economic myth and to get exactly the kind of educational experience I needed to work within the myth which has us all enthralled. It's the first truly global myth because there's no language barrier. It's all about numbers. It's conveyed in numbers and images. So uh, working within this economic myth, no better place to work within within a major multinational company which is involved in energy. That's what runs the world, energy of one kind or another, with a team of economists from all over the world. So I felt very privileged to work there. And every oil company, in fact, every major company has to think very seriously about the future. So what better place to be than a place where people are investing billions of dollars in a future 20 years down the road? When you look at the concept of scenario, could you explain that to people that don't have a context? The actual, what is a scenario? Give us a little piece of the logistics of how does a company or an organization move? First of all, identify what scenario they're in. Well, um, scenarios sometimes are misunderstood. That is, the word is used loosely to mean some kind of story about the future. And people will say, well, what's your scenario about what's going to happen in the election? Or what's your scenario about the next 20 years in the world? Whereas actually, the way that I use scenario and the way that it's done at Shell is to create more than one story, at least two, mutually exclusive, although not mirror images of each other, mutually exclusive but equally convincing, if you want to put it that way, stories about the future. And these stories make you, if you're the recipient of the stories, be flexibly oriented towards the future. Most of us think about the future simply by taking the past and misfiling it into the future. We just take the past and do a kind of straight line diagram into the future. But if you have two equally plausible stories about the future, which you hold in your head at the same time, you quit having the story of the future as a prediction and begin holding it as a fiction. And once you hold the story of the future as a fiction, because two equally plausible stories can't both be true, once you hold these stories as a fiction, you're loosened up and you begin to see that most of what we say about reality is a fiction. There are facts, and sometimes we don't have charge over those, but the story we have about the facts, we're totally in charge of telling that story. It's a recontextualization of conversation. It's the conversation about what we're seeing and experiencing, if you well, will. it's the narrative. It's how we put facts together. You know, you can say, well, I was born in such and such place, of such and such parents, with such and such uh, IQ, and you can go on and give all the facts, but what you say about the meaning of those facts is entirely under your control. And most of what happens in the world is 
a result not of the the actual facts, facts right but the story we tell about the facts and of course the story we're telling now globally in the world and particularly in the United States of America with regard to terrorist attacks what it means that whole scenario how does somebody like you look at the story we're telling now on the news inside our own administration and then privately and publicly to our friends loved ones and associates well for understandable reasons the story we're telling creates a lot of fear uh, we're telling a story of hidden enemies all over and who want to do us in and there's some truth to some of that on a on one level and so that creates a lot of fear and where there is fear the story of possibility is constricted so I would like to see us tell uh, a story which opens out a little more, saying, given this situation, what opportunities are here? What opportunities lie within the situation? And we saw that open out soon after 9-11. We saw the opportunity for a new way of being together with other countries in the world. I think we missed that window of opportunity, but it's not to say there aren't other windows there to tell a new story about what needs to happen in the world. If there was something at this moment that you could transmit to the existing leadership, and by the way, be it any side, Republican or Democrat, but at the moment it's this particular president, and I'm sure it's a sensitive question, but how do you feel you could transmit the value of bringing in a new story, like you did with Shell Oil, to this administration given the bend and the gravity and severity of the stance? Well, one of the uh, things that has to be done first whenever you're talking about large cultural stories is to be very clear about what story we're already in, what story we're telling. And at the moment, we have a, a mixed message coming out of lots of different mythological uh, backgrounds. For example, when I talked about the hero myth and the religious myth and the democratic myth and the economic myth, the overarching story leading up to the war in Iraq came from all those four myths. Um, some people said, oh, well, it, it's all about oil. Another said it's about the axis of evil and overcoming evil. Another said, well, we're there to create a democracy in Iraq. <laughs> or we're there to fight our enemies. So each of those, you know, when you tell a story from different myths, they have different consequences, and pretty soon people get pretty... Invested. Um, there's not an overarching story that we can believe in that is a story about what the values are of what we're up to. So, in a way, we're not very clear about the stories we're telling, much less being clear about a new story that we could tell together. And I do mean together, so there's another story about what it takes to even create a story. These things are complex. There's not just a, a content that's to be offered, you know, like, here's the story. If you say, right. you tell this story, that It's layers within layers within layers, if you will. Well, and yes, and it also has to do the process of storytelling itself. It's not about somebody making up a story and selling it. It's about a story emerging. Do you think it's possible to midwife a new story for humanity with the U.S. government? Yes, I do think it's possible. I just finished a book with three guys from MIT, Otto Schammer and Peter Senge and Joe Jaworski, called Presence. And this is a book about how it's possible to do large-scale change in the world in groups. Because I don't think we're looking for a leader on a white horse to come save us. We have to do this together at a grassroots level through groups and what is it that allows the future that wants to emerge and i'm sorry for this language you know i'm making it seem as if the future is destined and wants to come through but i don't know any better language but what allows the future that wants to emerge to emerge creatively 
in a group process. So there's a lot of process work to be done. There's a lot of thinking about the future, not using the old paradigms of the past, but listening, learning to listen with uh, a great deal of imagination to each other. And speaking of imagination, you know, imagination has a lot of attractive points about it. When people talk about the imagination, they often get excited about it. However, what I found also is in business circles, the higher up you go, it's considered like a place of fantasy, of unreality. You know, more creative people, I have found the more creative one is, one has more congruence with connection to the word imagination, the faculty of imagination, more comfort with it, the more you get into the economic myth and have integrated and absorbed it as it is, the kind of like that seems like a place of unreality and fantasy. And yet, in my experience in the last 14 years, it's where I see the conception and formation of creative works, solutions, and industries. And I was wondering what you think the role of imagination could play as a faculty in these emerging stories for humanity? Well, one thing about the imagination is that unless you've imagined it first, you can't make it happen. Something new has to be imagined. Even when it's emerging, it has the possibility has to be imagined, that there can be something different. I also think that, um, as you mentioned, a fruitful place for imagination to, to work now in the world is in multinational corporations. And although those are difficult breeding grounds for imagination, it's absolutely necessary for us to imagine new ways of being in the world together economically because that's the engine that drives people to operate together even when religions put us on different sides of some issues. I think it was Risaburo Kaku, who was the CEO of Canon for a while in Japan, who said the only entity whose self-interest coincides with the interest of the world at large is a multinational when it's operating in a multinational context. That is, that's the only entity whose self-interest coincides with the self-interest of the whole. Now, that's a very interesting paradox. Insight. It seems like a paradox, in a way, Yes. to an outsider. Well, yes, because it says multinationals have a big stake in the world not dividing up into nations, because they are multinationals. They have a big stake in nations not going to war with each other. Now, if you, that's, that's a kind of opposite way of looking at things uh, from our usual take. But if we look at it and say, what... What stake, and this is back to your question of why I work with a multinational, if you look and say who has a lot to gain from peace on earth, it's huge corporate entities. Now, that's not why to work for peace on earth. It's just to say you can find allies in the strangest places. That's very beautifully put. Suppose a genie popped out of a bottle, and, and I think a genie's popping out of a bottle tonight. And the genie says you have three wishes for humanity. What would they be and why? Well, um, <laughs> you know, in a way, humanity is always wishing and always gets what it wishes for. So these wishes are going on even as we speak. We are, we are already having wishes. And the world has a strange way of manifesting our wishes. So I would say the wishes need to be larger and more imaginative. So I would wish for better wishing as one of my wishes, for more insight into what to wish for. That would be the first wish. The second wish would be to, to give a greater capacity to see the results of the things we wish for, to make a cause-effect connection between what we wish for, which is what we get, and what 
results those things create in the world. I, I guess that's a way of saying I would wish for a more systems approach to seeing what's going on in the world. And the third thing I'd wish for, and the last thing, is the wisdom to see that what we get and what's going on is far greater than anything we could wish for. So the third wish would be the understanding of the end of wishes. I'm perplexed. The understanding of the end of wishes? Yes. When you see the world as it truly is, you know, if the doors of perception were cleansed, we would see the world as it truly is, which is miraculous and amazing and unbelievably beautiful. And if we saw that, there's nothing we would wish for because anything we could wish for would be puny besides what we've really got if we could only open our eyes and see. So it would be the end of wishes. If we could really see, we wouldn't wish because we wouldn't be capable of wishing for what we've already got. You sound like Rumi, the poet. <laughs> well, I Even love Even though you act, you act like Shams of Tabriz for a lot of people. <laughs> a lot of people spin out of your offices, spin off the telephone, are whirling around the world after having conversations with you. So, you know, you are Shams of Tabriz, but tonight you sound like Rumi. Well, Kim, I, I have to tell you something, a secret you probably already know, which is that you can't tell anything to anyone who doesn't already know it. <laughs> so if people come spinning out, it's because I've said something they already knew. You're very humble. No, I think that's very true. It's just a kind of flat fact. Only those who have ears to hear can actually hear them. So it's just a way of sounding a note which is already out there in the world and in the hearts of some people. So if you're, you're spinning around, it's because of what you see inside yourself. You're an excellent midwife. I can't imagine the number of products, services, industries, books, creative works, solutions that have been spawned out of dialogues with you. If somebody would track that, I think you'd be arrested. <laughs> I think you'd be arrested for being, uh, for being an inspiration to millions of people. Well, but we, it's a, you know, it's just a matter of seeing the beauty that is already there. Yes. Do you think that projects are animate? Well, I'm, you know, I have a strange poetic way of viewing the world in which everything is energy. So in one kind of way, everything is animate. Everything has its own identity and energy. And especially when people are involved. If you look at a piece of wood that a woodcarver has carved with love, it's got its own life and energy. And so certainly a project that a lot of people are working on has a, a kind of identity and energy that you can actually feel in the world. So some people think in the business world that a project becomes animate, alive, is, quote, real, only when it's financed. Well, you know, money is a powerful form of energy, and within the economic myth, it is energy. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, in the way that light is energy. So, what they're feeling is that it's, it's in the same way that a breath of life is one of the ways that we characterize a human being being alive or dead, a project, in, in the economic myth, Money is like the breath of life that animates something, that gives the breath of life into it. So on one level, they're, they're quite correct. Some people would say the spirit of the project does, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah, no, in, in living in the world, the finances actually make it move in the world. And so, as I say, there, there's a way in which what they're saying is quite true. There's also another way in which a project can live in the imagination and spawn results that aren't exactly the same thing as what you would imagine a 
finance project would be, it spawns other kinds of results. So it has its own life. The life of something that lives as an idea is quite different from the life of something that lives as a reality moving in the world. Maybe I should introduce its rainmaking time. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I should reintroduce its rainmaking time here. I think we're at the point of form now. Uh (laughs) You have spoken in the past of a body of work or a project needing to be, is it variated? Variated enough for others to get on board. Well, yes, there has to be a variety in it. There has to be enough differentiation and enough different colors in it for people to be able to latch on to something that is already them in the project. Otherwise, if it's simply the articulation of a leader, it goes only so far as the leader can go, which is not as far as a whole group can go. So there's something about complexity that allows for the greater potentiality of creativity in relation to any project. Almost like it also makes it harder to, to coordinate, of course. Tell me about it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so uh, moving right along. Yeah, let's see. I've been at this, what, a few, uh, few years here. And we're now just at the head of the baby, okay? Uh-huh. Yeah. This baby's crowning. We just don't know what it is yet. Okay. Right. And the reason I ask you that is that there are really so many people around the world who are carrying creative works, carrying poetry, music that's coming through them and to them, projects that are near and dear to their heart who are called to do them and can't not do them. And I've never heard anybody talk about the realm of manifesting a project and carrying it and what, on a textual level, it needs to be like the way I've heard you speak. So that's why I wanted to ask you about that. For those of us who are creative and involved in projects, whether they're highly creative or business projects or any kind of projects. Well, a lot of people get stuck because they wait for the world to validate their project before they take the second step. They take one step, and then they wait for something to say yes. Whereas actually... Projects develop in a kind of dance with the universe. So you take one step and you listen carefully for what the universe says. And it doesn't, the universe doesn't usually say a clear yes or no. It says something else like blue or peacocks or grass or something that just you don't know. Uh, and then you integrate that into the project. So you dance with the universe's response to your project. You don't wait for validation of the idea that you had. And then the project changes in the course of dancing with the universe. As you speak it, it's as if a project has its own life, its own voice, its own texture, its own compositional structure that speaks to the carrier. Yes, it's like a child in that. I mean, you you can support a child and you can give it the nurturing it needs, but it does have its own identity and you can't control it in any kind of way. Speak more about that. Well, that's another thing that creators will sometimes do. They want to control the effect of what they're doing. They want to control how it gets out in the world, and you, and you just can't do that. Uh, you release it, and it has its own life. I've found that to be true with its rainmaking time, actually, organically. Mm-hmm. And other projects that I've been involved in, that you can't be attached to how it gets out. That's Even right. if you see it clearly in a vision, it has a different, almost intelligence... I don't know if that's the right word, but that's what it feels like. Yes, and that's why it's so important to have as much, in any project you do, to have as much truth in it 
as you possibly can as you set it forth because then it can be sustained in the world. Anything that has mere spin or that is somehow slightly not of truth will crumble around the edge and lose momentum and lose energy and run down. Something that has a kind of integrity to it will stay on its own momentum uh, for a much longer time. Although I'm sure some people would say, you know, when you're talking about the works of pioneers like uh, Sterling Energy and Star Tech and, you know, some of these people that are bringing through very important works that have a lot of integrity, you know, they've struggled for years. I mean, they've been through all kinds of things where they've also, you know, at times lost momentum. I mean, all of them, even Dr. Muhammad Yunus with the Grameen Bank. But then something happened and it caught hold. No, it's always a kind of hero's journey where you go into the dark night of the soul or the belly of the whale or all those other kinds of things Joseph Campbell talked about in the typical hero's journey. And you just know that that's part of the path. You've met so many, so many fascinating and creative people. And I know this is a difficult question because you really, you can't limit the number of people because you've just met too many incredible people. But you've done a lot of traveling and you've talked to thousands and thousands i can't even imagine how many thousands but in the last i don't know five to ten years of your life are there a few people you are comfortable speaking about and sharing with us that have influenced you dramatically well um i think a lot of the people have influenced me you wouldn't know their names and some of them i don't even know their names um i'm thinking of one woman i saw in a cafeteria I was uh, leading a group at Vassar, um, a group of teachers in a workshop, and every day we went through a cafeteria line, and I happened to notice the woman who passed out potatoes. You know, it's one of these, not, you, you've got more or less the same food every day, <laughs> different meat, but always potatoes, and she passed out potatoes, and I noticed that people were talking to her. She was talking to them, and at the end of the week, the teachers gave a party for the cafeteria crew. Now, that's highly unusual. Very seldom do you just get to know the cafeteria crew and when i looked into it it was this one woman who would say something to each person as they passed something very personal like almost completely out of her intuition so magical and so personal that she transformed lives even as she was just putting potatoes on plates now that is a very unlikely thing to happen i observed that i told that to a group just recently that story and everyone had stories of people who did that in their lives. One of the women who takes tickets going out of the airport and wears a different hat every day. And then one of the women in the group said, you know, I haven't told people this, but in my spare time, I'm a clown. And here was a group of people in business suits sitting in a chair. These chairs happen to be (laughs) chairs you could swirl around. And she said, it would change the whole atmosphere in this room and create possibility for the whole week if everyone here could start twirling around in their chairs. (laughs) This is a seminar. This is a business seminar. Everyone started twirling around in their chairs, laughing uproariously. (laughs) People on the outside waiting for the, you know, how you have these conferences and you have, you know, a session from one to three and three to five and all that. They opened the door to see what was happening and were completely blown away by all these executives spinning around in these chairs, laughing maniacally. I love it. How wild. Now, that's a scene. That's a scene. It came from a story. It came, And so here's this woman who's passing potatoes 10 years after she does this thing with potatoes. She's transforming a room of corporate executives who are twirling around laughing maniacally just from telling the story. Now that's power. Yes. It's lovely. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. 
No matter what the state of the economy is, there will always be time-honored traditions and special events. The Sterling Hut has been in business since 2008, offering a wide range of fantastic sterling silver products, including finely crafted mint julep cups, personalized baby shower gifts, photo albums, exquisite jewelry boxes and awards, and so much more. The Sterling Hut is an authorized Silver Star international reseller of fine silver products and anniversary gifts. The business is owned by Jewel and Bob Howard. If you would be interested in buying someone a gift of pure sterling silver or sterling plated silver, you can call 1-888-819-1009. Get a 15% discount by going to the Sterling Hut, the Sterling, S-T-E-R-L-I-N-G, Hut, H-U-T, dot com, and saying it's rainmaking time. They will honor a 15% discount for you. Beautiful sterling silver gifts for all of life's occasions. Manufactured in Italy and handcrafted by skilled artisans. They can also be engraved in sterling picture frames, oval and rectangular silver trays, champagne ice buckets, silver goblets, coffee and tea service, coffee pots, silver mugs, candelabras, and silver jewelry unrivaled in design and style. Go to the Sterling Hut at sterlinghut.com. And back to the show. Ladies and gentlemen, you are tuning in to It's Rainmaking Time. We are here with the remarkable Betty Sue Flowers. And we are streaming the show on the World Wide Web. We're glad that you're there. Speaking of this magical woman, Betty Sue... When I say to children, it's rain-making time, they get very happy. Their faces light up. They get all excited. That is until I tell them my name is Kahuna. <laughs> and then they all, then they get really hysterical. Of course, they start running off at that point. <laughs> but when I say it's rain-making time, the faces light up. And I know when, and I say, are you a rainmaker? And they know what that is. They just they know. know that they are. Indeed. They know what that is and they know that they are. And when you talked about this magical woman, I feel like there's this fear. First of all, there's a, like a distortion and a misunderstanding of what magic is. But you know when you talk to children and you look at children that they all know. Yes. And that behind closed doors, adults know too. But when they come out of those doors, you know, it's about covering the magic. And I was wondering if you could share a bit, because most of your world and most of your life has been so magical. I really would like to defer the conversation about magic to you at this point, to share something, your take on what it is and what it isn't. Well, to me, magic is not superstition. It's not about making something happen. The old form of magic, sympathetic magic, is if you burned so many animals on the pyre, you'd make God do X, Y, or Z. It's a kind of... uh, lower form of technology, that kind of magic is not interesting to me. The magic that I'm thinking of is the noticing of the synchronicity in the world that already exists and the capacity for joy that can burst through at any moment. The carpet executives swinging around in their seats said, in effect, you know, we don't all have to play the role of this heavy seriousness. There's a great deal of joy in the world that can come in in little pieces and in unexpected ways. And to me, magic is that twinkle of joy and possibility that comes, that breaks through our stories that create the world 
as if the world is a static place. The world is much more, it's much fuller of possibility than we give it credit for. And magic just opens the door to the possibility that already exists. Do you think that the spirit is behind magic? The individual spirit is really kind of the animator of the magic or the vehicle by which the magic comes through? Or how do you relate the two? Or how do you think about the two? Well, um, in a way, magic is kind of the result of a conspiracy. And the conspiracy is is the uncovering of conspiracy. You know, in The Wizard of Oz, when um, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, uh, (laughs) you know, and you unveil this tremendous, scary force, and uh, it's someone working a bunch of levers. Well, what magic does is it unveils the deep seriousness with which we all take each other and in which we take everything. And it says, look, what is all this about? What is it for? I think our our founders had it right. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The pursuit of happiness is a very profound notion that we tend to take rather superficially. It's as if life intends for us to have joy so much, and, and that's something children understand. So I, I think that the spirit of reality is a spirit of joy and of seeing how things connect and how astonishing it is that doors open when you most need them to open and that people come to help when you most need them to help, that the world is set up that way if we only could see it. In the United States of America, would you not agree with me that this is a culture that prides itself deeply on making things happen, vis-a-vis the will? Oh, yes. And therefore, on one hand, that's responsible for many of the wonderful things that have been created and generated from here. And on the flip side, it has also been like the bane. One of the big problems with letting magic in, letting things come through, um, trusting that doors will open. It's it's a strange uh, paradox, if you will. We're the make-it-happen country, and yet there's other divine principles and forces at work which work with us and do a lot of the work for us. I mean, it's it's in a lot of religions and traditions, and yet... This is the country that prides itself on willing everything into being. How do you see that opposite of the situation that we're in right now? Well, I think we, and I love this about our country, we are the make-it-happen country. I think the issue is what is the it that we're making happen? And what have we looked carefully and listened to people about what, what wants to happen, what wants to emerge? We sometimes get an idea in our head, or we don't really think about it very much, of what we want to make happen without seeing the new thing that might want to emerge, which is quite different from what we want to make happen. So you're right to um, use the word will because it has to do with the education of the will. We recently had a book about the education of the emotions, emotional intelligence. We know about the education of the mind. We don't know that much about the education of the will. And that's something to be thought about very deeply because there are different levels of will. There's the puny, unfree will. There is a larger will that you can be connected to with your will. There, there's all kinds of things about the will that we don't think about. We just willfully go out and impose an unthinking pattern on other things occurring in the world. 
I sometimes see it as the like central nervous system of most of the suffering of the world. Yes, you but you know, when you look at life, the way life is set up, even the human body, so many things operate in patterns of light and dark and left hand, right hand, and left foot and right foot, and heat and cold, and all the systems have to do with opposites dancing together. It's not ever just the imposition of one thing. We sleep and we wake, we breathe in and breathe out. So the trouble with imposing will is that it tends to go just in one direction, and the stronger you impose your will, the less you are likely to be listening. That's very powerful. You did some work with D. Hawk, the founder of Visa, as a chaotic organization. Yes. On chaos and how he built Visa. And it sounds like it's appropriate to ask you about your take on what is it to found something in an organism based on chaos and how that could alter the way we experience our will and use our will. Well, mostly I talked with Dee while he was writing his book. He was articulating what it was that happened when he helped to found Visa. And he, he coined the term chaotic because he wanted to point out that chaos, chaos theory and chaos are not just one and the same thing. His great insight about Visa was a biological one, and that is that you can have organisms of incredible complexity emerge from very simple iterations of something if you don't impose a kind of centralized control. So if you let all the countries in the world and all the little units in the world run their own visa programs, if you don't try to impose a CEO, you know, if you say, where are the headquarters of Visa, which is the largest company in the world in terms of profits that it makes, where, where are the company headquarters? There, there are no headquarters. There's no corporate office. No. It, it's a completely, you could say, viral organization. It stretches out all over, and the units are uh, independent. What they do have is a kind of constitution that is a set of rules that everyone follows. But that's not the same as a central commander imposing his will. It's coming together and saying, here's what we agree to do. And then people do it on their own. So this is a very different paradigm for operating together in the world. And to me, offers some hope for imagining a kind of system of global governance. Not government, not government, but governance, which is completely federated and not to do with any one entity imposing its will on the rest of us so part of the organism the organism of consciousness in such a constitution would have to lay down on a foundational level the seed of trust yes yes the way uh dr muhammad yunus founded the grameen bank in bangladesh for 25 years and it's been profitable that's right and his his great insight had to do with how to build a structure of trust it's not enough simply to trust because then the weakest link lets down the whole edifice but if you build a structure that rewards trust in which trust is a key component you can build something both very powerful and very um, slender in its resources if you think you know he didn't start off with billions of dollars to loan he started off in a very small way how does that translate in the real world do you actually know when you say started in a small way, meaning an office and a phone? I mean, are we talking at that level? 
Yes, or even just your own ideas. I mean, you what you're starting on the web with this rainmaking program, you have no idea what person listening to it or somehow coming in contact with it will be inspired to do. You just have no idea. <laughs> I'm scared to know. Well, I mean, I truthfully, in my heart, I want a new station for the world. Right. That's what I desire so strongly. I want something that transmits a higher vibration to the world so the world can hear all the wonderful, incredible, invigorating news, information, and stories that I'm not saying that there aren't stations that aren't attempting to do that or aren't doing that, but I know that on a human level we're capable of so much better, so much better. You know, and, and kids are in front of television sets and families are, and we're mired in it, and we're really hypnotized by what we're hearing. Yeah, but, you know, you can hang out with, uh, with different people and with different stories. You can um, decide not to watch the evening news one night. I think it's responsible to know what the news is, but actually you can get the news very quickly. And then read a roomy poem instead. <laughs> and uh, you'll be transported to a place, given the same 20 minutes that you have in the day, you can understand the news about five or six minutes, and then you can read one news story in depth so that you understand things the news can't say just by giving you a headline and then you can read a poem or listen to music and you'll be in touch with a reality that makes better sense of the news than some of the news stories do and now ladies and gentlemen i'd like to open up the call-in lines for those of you who would like to introduce yourself to betty sue flowers for the next 15 to 18 minutes by calling one 625 3724. And I'm going to repeat that two more times. For those of you who are shy, I really want you to call and introduce yourselves and ask Betty Sue Flowers a question. 1 877 625 3724. And I'm going to say this one more time. The call in number for its rainmaking time tonight is 1 1- Eight seven seven six two five three seven two four. Now, while while we're going to stand here and pray that people have the courage to call, I'd like to ask you a couple other questions while we're waiting. And it seems like rainmaking has a lot to do with waiting, Betty Sue. I used to think it had to do all with doing. And I would say 10 years ago, I was a nonstop doer. Now it's listening and waiting. Now, I would say that I've refined my skills. (laughs) The question I have for you now is, what right now is a couple of the single biggest challenges that you have faced in your life to date, even with your incredibly gifted capability, multifaceted life, wonderful family life? What are some of the challenges that you have faced that you would like to share on the air with us tonight? Well, the challenge I'm facing at the moment is a challenge about how do you solve large problems, like the health care problem in the United States, from the grassroots. Something like that takes so much coordination so that we think only the government with policies either undoing something or doing something can solve the problem. And certainly private entities have no incentive to solve it individually, uh, money-making entities. So how is it that people could form, what's the form of organization that allows solutions to come from the grassroots? It's a great question. And that's what I'm trying to do with healthcare at the moment. So 
So I have a lot of initiatives going at the library and elsewhere, and we're just starting, but uh, we've made some good progress, and we'll see how this works. It's just an experiment, and these are experiments in uh, social leadership, leadership, grassroots leadership, and grassroots policymaking. And I just want to see, it's very, very, very difficult. I just want to see how it can be done. I had an opportunity to sit with Thich Nhat two years ago when he was in San Diego. And I told him that I asked a question, and I held this question for 14 years. And I said, it sent me all over the place, and that I was scared to keep asking these kinds of questions. (laughs) (laughs) And what was the question, Ken? Well... I'll see if I can remember the full gamut of what I told him, but basically, what would it take to establish a solution delivery agency that would spawn a new generation of products, services, industries, and solutions for humanity that would also provide the finance, that would fast-track the financing of all of these things? What would it take to have that come together? And I didn't say it as eloquently as I wrote it and have been holding it, but basically what would it take to spawn a new generation of solutions for the world that have got to get to the world and must be financed? What would quicken it, expedite it, and break through the scarcity and the bureaucracy of many existing solutions not being able to be financed in the either the research or development stage, you know, to expedite the time frame from conception to full delivery? And I'm really sometimes <laughs> worried about myself that, I, that I'm perplexed and I'm still working on that puppy. But I will tell you, he said to me that if all I did was continue to ask that kind of a question, that it would do a lot of good in the world for other people to join me in asking that question. Mm-hmm. Because solutions that are not getting funded, not because they're bad or the people are bad or some other reasons or they're not the right politics or they're not in the right place or they're quote underfunded many solutions like the one you're talking about what you were talking about has to do with the original conceptualization of making health care available and solving that dilemma on a systemic individual and systemic level right right this has to do with the conceptualization having to do with making financial means available bypassing what you and I would consider traditional investors, the whole scenario that's been written about traditional investors and the SEC and the power brokering and the big expensive attorneys, how do we take it at a grassroots level and put investing on an individual level, power at that level? Now, I know there's many people around the world who have tried different scenarios from different types of funds and this kind of fund. And Dr. Muhammad Yunus did his organism and organization of a big key of that but there's another key into it and it has to do to me with the collective transmission of money but anyway part of it is a structural dilemma that I've been working on for 14 years the other one is a consciousness and conversational level trying to get people to get that it's possible so for example on a concrete level if I say to you look Betty Sue it's possible that we could get 100,000 people to wire $500 to Solution X to fund it, develop it, protect it within 24 to 72 hours. That's remarkable. 
without having to have an SEC offering, pay an attorney's firm $100,000, all the barriers and hoops and hoops and hoops. So basically for 14 years I've gone in and studied the whole kit and caboodle, how everything in sight works about that. But I will tell you that the next step in putting it, you know, actually bringing it all together, it's a very, very big feat. But the question itself took me to all these places to try to solve it, to better understand what's here. What's the myth that's here? What's the story that people are telling? And it's part of it is what you're in, the economic myth that we're all in, that you have identified. And it's structured very tightly in finance, in investing, and the structures and the language and the people who influence who gets to move money, who should move money, what is considered risk, and what is even considered a value. That's also a conversation. So anyway, the questions that you're asking and the questions that we ask, to me, are transportation vehicles into the future or bring the future into the present. But it's challenging very challenging. Well, we need to build mechanisms that have both transparency and accountability to do more on the web. You know, a great deal of money has been raised individually, the dollar-by-dollar amounts for for, uh, political candidates through the web, and there's no reason why money can't be raised the same way for business ventures and not just candidates. But there's some legal issues to get solved and some accountability. So really, a lot of structural work needs to be done to affect the kind of rainmaking that you're talking about. Yes. But I think it's really quite doable, and but it won't coalesce around any particular project until that project itself is articulated. <laughs> what you call variated, too, right? Yeah, well, <laughs> it's got to, yeah, it's got to yeah. have, uh, it's got to be sticky. <laughs> so uh, money sticks to it as well as people and the kind of commitment that will last during the hard times. Yes. One of the things that entrepreneurs have in spades is the capacity to think positively even when it, everything looks hopeless with their product or their idea. Tell me about it. <laughs> they just keep going. Yeah, how is that possible? How do we do it? They have belief in what they're doing. They really believe in what they're doing. You know, it's a funny thing on the web. It's a new show and people want to know what's the distribution? You know, and of course the new distribution is that it's new distribution. We are just building it and we're building it each week. Do you archive the conversations so people can tap into them later? Absolutely. Well, Every I- single show is archived. Uh-huh. So that's part of it. There's just tremendous, tremendous... There's so much greatness happening in the world that yes. to be attracted to it and open to it and have a love for bringing it in and bringing it through to the people, given where we are right now in humanity... I mean, you know, you want to talk about terrorism and, you know, you want to talk about global warming. If even an hour were given to articulate the truth about global warming without any type of advocacy this way or that way, and you brought in some of the main people who have their handle on this in the world, what's really going on to translate it to the public, I can assure you, the mainstream, most of the public would not be worried about terrorism the way they would be concerned and want something done about what's happening with climate changes and weather and global warming. That's an example, Mm -hmm. a very real example. When somebody high up in global warming says, in 20 years, the way it's going and the non-attention to this matter could put Europe in an ice age. 
That's not funny. Yeah, it doesn't even take a, you know, a dirty bomb to affect great change. And there are a lot of things along those lines. One of the reasons I've been in, interested in healthcare is observing the way it skews lives, the way people make decisions about where they will work based on health benefits. When they'd really be doing one thing, they do another just because of health benefits. So the way in which people's happiness is twisted just in order to get what they need in terms of health benefits. So there's some issues there out in the world that need to be solved and not just for us to wait around for someone else to... Exactly, exactly. God bless you for working on that. We have Maria from Los Angeles who is calling in to talk and introduce herself. Maria, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Thank you for calling. Yes, it's a pleasure for me to... So, I'm from Los Angeles, pianist, and I have a question that is with me my whole life. So, I'd like you to tell us what's the experience that living both, how we can live the life listening to the dance of the universe, but at the same time creating power, I mean creating the new possibilities that we imagine through our willpower, how we can experience both. And well, them. I can only answer in an image, and then you can ask me another question to be more specific if, if we can, if the image doesn't help as much. But in a way, we almost have to live with feet in both worlds, and we're given two arms and two legs and two eyes. You know, our eyes see together. They make uh, binocular vision because our eyes can work together. We have to keep one eye we have to see near and far, and we have to, the only way we can see with depth is to see with both eyes together. So the metaphor there is that the question, as I would ask it, is not how can we, but how can we prevent ourselves from falling into one side or another, that we have to keep both things going. Now, is there a specific case that uh, you'd like to know about? And then we can be quite more specific, and that might be more helpful. No, it's just like, I don't know, I feel that there are two energies living with me all the time. Uh One energy is kind of a parallel layer that's a creative energy that I I, I need to dance with it. But at the same time, there is another layer that I can create. And then I, I can manifest miracles every day, creating possibilities. So sometimes, really, I am, I don't understand what are these two layers and how can I work with them? Well, do you find that you are in one and when you're in one you can't reach or see or be aware of the other or do they exist and you can see them both at the same time? To see both at the same time I need to be reflecting or meditating. But living, for example, okay, so I organize a goal, I have this wish, so I work hard on this. And then I, I, when I see that I have something that's not going on right, so I'm resisting, so okay, let me stop and listen to, to the universe. And then I change my role, <laughs> something like that. Yes, it seems to me that you're doing it exactly the right way. Does, is that not working for you? Yes, it is, but no, nobody ever told me how they live this, and I'd like to share how it is, and have more ideas and how I can make my possibilities more happen better. I think you should read Betty Sue's book, isn't it uh, Presence and Synchronicity? Betty yes. Sue, which one yes. should she pick up? Uh, synchronicity is easier to get into, but actually I think she has I think she has an answer rather than a question, which has <laughs> to do with living with both these things and 
one of the things I would add to her answer that she's sort of given as a gift here is that it sounds like one of the things you, you have gotten good at and which would help all of us to get good at is being able to let go, not cling to one thing or another. So when you're living in possibility, you can let that go when, in order to see the cosmic coming through and you can let that go in order to manifest and, and so that you can move in a fluid fashion from one state of being, which is natural to human beings, to another. So it seems to me that you have somehow the right take on things, at least a fruitful take on things, and that it's just a matter of continuing to do what you're doing and the consciousness in which you are and not to worry about it. Yeah, thank you. I think you. you're doing the right thing. Doesn't it feel right to you? Yes, I, I really feel this. Well, <laughs> let me just affirm what you're already feeling then, because it it sounds very good, and it, it sounds that uh, you can release any worry about it. Yeah, great. <laughs> Thanks so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Maria. Thank you for calling. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. And Betty Sue, you have this piece that you've written called The Rules. <laughs> Oh, the ten rules for the road. Do you would you like to go through that before we uh, we have about a minute left or a minute or two? But we can take a few minutes. Would you like to share those rules? I think they're worthy well, of a close. Uh, there are ten of them, so I can't really do it. But one of the ones that strikes me that uh, to say here in relation to her is where you stumble, there your treasure is. That one of the rules has to do with that as a truth. So whenever you stumble, are you're rain making, but the rain isn't coming. There's a treasure there for you, and it's a matter of looking to see what it is. And that comes from many ancient stories of farmers plowing in their fields and stumbling, and there's a rock or something, and they pick it up, and there's a treasure there. And there's a deep psychological truth about that. Where can people get the rules? Well, I don't know. Should we, should we, <laughs> put, them up, should we put them up on the rainmaking site? Sure, I think they're in a. You're very welcome to. I would like to uh, share your rules with the world and put it up and acknowledge you on the site along with the streaming audio of this segment. And Betty Sue, I want to thank you for joining us and bringing this great elegance and kindness and higher wisdom to rainmaking. And you are the rainmaking, and we look forward to having you back on again and again. God bless you, and thank you again. And you too, Kim. Uh, Good luck in the rainmaking. Thank you. This is Kim Greenhouse. I want to thank you for listening to this segment of It's Rainmaking Time with Betty Sue Flowers. I want to let you know how much I appreciate you listening, and I want to invite you all to become part of the rainmaking. Thank you very much.